This is the Beautiful Writers Podcast. I'm Linda Sievertson, your host, and today's guest is Hollywood comedy veteran, script, screen, and book writer, Nell Scavell. You know how sometimes someone tells you about a book and you think, yeah, that sounds good, but I'm probably not going to get around to buying it. Yeah, that's not what happened with me here. My girlfriend, Betsy Rappaport, and I were talking last week, and she said, you've got to read Nell Scavell's new memoir, Just the Funny Parts. Despite not having time for a sixth book in my current rotation, I had one of those moments where time just kind of felt heightened, you know, where the room looks a little brighter. I try to pay attention to those moments, and I move forward on them because I always think they're an indication of getting into flow. So while I'm on the phone with Bets, I go online, I order the book, and when it came the next day, I was packing for Carmel, where I am now leading a writing retreat. And I knew I was taking a few weeks off after that to go off the grid to write. So I thought, uh, maybe I'll get to this later. I certainly don't have time to track Nell down now and send a formal pitch for a podcast interview. And I don't have time to go back and forth with whatever guest host I choose and all three of our calendars, right? There was no way. But then I couldn't stop myself and I cracked open the book and she just had me like instantly. When I finished the final page, which I think was the next day, I just said, screw it. I'm not going to do a formal pitch, but I've got to get her. So I found her website. I found her agent info. I sent a crazy stalkery email that went something like this. OMFG, I am obsessed. I have to interview Nell now. Please say yes. Ah, but there's a catch. I'm traveling and I only have tomorrow or Sunday morning. (laughs) So I get an email back saying yes to Sunday. So party people, that's why this episode is a little shorter than usual because it was Sunday morning and our families were waiting for us. But how cool is that? You can listen to this while you're on the treadmill burning off one donut. It's a quickie, but I hope you'll find it a goodie. And of course, I'm sure you know, this won't be the last of us. I'm already writing her follow-up questions for the book. So a few bio things. Nell's official book title is Just the Funny Parts and a few hard truths about sneaking into the Hollywood Boys Club. Nell has written for The Simpsons, NCIS, Letterman, Larry David, Obama, The Hollywood Correspondence Center, basically everyone. She co-authored Lean In with Sheryl Sandberg. She created Sabrina the Teenage Witch. She's been writing for over 30 years, you guys, in Hollywood. She's a producer, a director, a wife and a mom, and she's figured out how to live with very little (laughs) mom guilt, LOL. She chose her book title, Just the Funny Parts, because she said if she picked the angry and bitter parts, it would have been an eight-volume set. But as good-natured as Nell is, mm, that's not really a joke. What I find most lovable about her is her courage. She was one of the earliest and most vocal voices in Hollywood, fighting against gender bias and lack of diversity, both in late-night TV and writers' rooms in general. And she's got some great tips for us on how not to let politics derail our creativity. One last thing. Towards the end of our interview, Nell and I talk about how she went public with something she feared could ruin her career. There was a bit of a glitch in our phone connection and a few details are missing that I'd just like to clarify now. First, I talk about the Me Too movement and as a writer, if you want a piece to be read by a lot of people, you feel pressured to name names. 
The other thing is that in the two Me Too instances that I reference that happened to me with powerful men, I want to clarify that they only used their words to try and manipulate me. So while they were wildly inappropriate and behaving badly and made me momentarily hate my job, thankfully, I was lucky in that I was not physically compromised or vulnerable. Okay, back to Nell. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Okay, well, thank you for getting here on a Sunday morning. I know it's ridiculous. It's okay. Don't start with an apology. That's what women always do. You don't have to do that with me. (laughs) Okay, perfect. I'm psycho-obsessed with your book. (laughs) Thank you. But I'm here to talk about the royal wedding, right? Oh, my gosh. Wasn't it beautiful? I didn't watch it. You didn't watch it. I watched it. You know, Princess Diana broke my heart, that whole saga. So I can't invest again in a royal family member. (laughs) You know what? This one was really, really cool. I didn't cry until the choir came on. When the the gospel choir came on, I just, I lost it. It was the most beautiful choir I had ever seen. And to see it in the Church of England, are you kidding me? It was just too good. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's great. Yeah, it's too good. Okay, about you. Vogue called Just the Funny Parts, The New Bossy Pants Meets Lean In. That's Tina Fey and Sheryl Sandberg right there. Dude, is there any (laughs) higher compliment? No, there is not, actually. (laughs) I guess you could throw in like Dorothy Parker or something like that. Sure. Yeah, no, that was really nice. But this isn't your first book. You co-wrote Lean In with Sheryl Sandberg, and then she pinned the foreword of your book. So can yeah. you take us back to how that magic storyline appeared in your life? Because that's pretty major. It was one of the best things that ever happened to me. And it was really fortuitous. We had a mutual friend on Facebook. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. That's, I met Cheryl through Facebook. And so I come out in 2009, at the end of 2009, with this article in Vanity Fair that criticized late-night talk shows for gender discrimination. Yeah, we're so going to get to that, by the way. Okay, well then in 2010, Cheryl does this amazing TED Talk called Why We Have Too Few Women Leaders. Everyone should watch it. It just changed the way I viewed myself. For example, one of the things she tells women is to sit at the table. Yeah. And I love this advice because it's both metaphorical, the the table where decisions are made, and it's also literal because I remembered back when I was just starting and I was on New Heart, my very first script that I had full credit on is being read at the table, and I go to the table read. And instead of joining the other writers at the table, I sat on the periphery with the assistant. (laughs) And no one waved me over, and I didn't want to be too pushy. But here's the thing. I always thought that was a choice of mine. And after hearing Cheryl speak, I realized it was forced on me by our culture. Yeah. Right? So this thing that I thought was my free will and a personal decision that I had made was really predicted by our culture. Anyway, so Cheryl's talk really opened my eyes. And then one day this friend wrote me and said, have you seen Cheryl's TED Talk? And I wrote back, seen it, I've memorized it. (laughs) And he put us in touch. He thought we would get along, which we did. So 
I loved what you wrote about in Just the Funny Parts when you were talking about collaboration. And you said, it's like canoeing. Both paddlers need to row at the same speed and in the same direction. And in some (laughs) collaborations, one paddler steers and sets the pace. And then sometimes the partnership works and sometimes somebody's steering in totally the wrong direction. I've done a lot of collaborations in my life. And when it works, oh my God, there's nothing better. And when it doesn't work, it's absolute hell. Isn't it? So Lean In is Cheryl's book, and there's no version of Lean In that exists without Cheryl, but there's definitely a version of that book that exists without me. Um, <laughs> that being said, it was the greatest collaboration of my professional life. And we're both iterators, yeah. and we would mark up chapters and send them back and forth and comment and ask questions and push each other. And she was an absolute delight to work with. Mm, I love that. Okay, so I want to ask you about being funny and if it can be learned. My dad was hilarious, and we never missed Saturday Night Live or Carson as a family. So when my son was born, I told my then-husband, I said, that kid is going to watch SNL every week of his life. I don't care about bedtime. (laughs) So we had our infant up watching the boob tube with us every Saturday, and then We bought every Seinfeld VHS tape and had them on a loop in the house. And he's 27 now. And frequently we'll throw out a line where people are like, what the hell is that kid talking about? But everybody says it, that he's hilarious. And I think it rubbed off. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. I certainly think if you value humor, there's a greater chance that your kids will grow up with that value. Just like if you value honesty, and make it a point to tell your children, to be honest, they will value that too. I do agree with Kurt Vonnegut who said, quote, some people are funny, some are not. So I'm not sure that would work regardless sure, of sure. natural ability. But I do think, too, you can either appreciate comedy and you don't have to make it to appreciate it. And two, just like my siblings are all super funny. And it's weird that I made a profession out of it, but my brother teaches biology in a high school in New York, and he's hilarious. (laughs) That's so good. I know my dad was a stockbroker. Okay, every writer, no matter the topic, needs to be funny. Even books with heavy topics like Sheryl Sandberg's Option B, which I love, they all need humor. I tell all my clients, read Martha Beck, Tina Fey, the two Amys, Poehler and Schumer. Do you have any other recommendations for how to bring funny to your writing? Well, really practical advice is I tried so hard not to have any cliches in my book. And and we tend to, I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head. Isn't it weird? I can't think of a cliche. But, you know, I felt dead inside. And there were some in the first draft. And then I worked hard to edit through and take them out. So that's one way is just to make your writing better. I don't know if it makes it funnier. You know, I think it's just a perspective on the world, too. Just how do you twist the reality that you see? Yeah. So speaking of funny, can you share your Larry David P. story? It's <laughs> just too good. Oh, sure. So the backstory is that I get this chance to work with Larry David in 2007 when Curb Your Enthusiasm put out the word through agents that they were soliciting ideas from writers. So I had this story idea where Larry needs to bring flowers for a hostess gift, 
and decides to steal them from a roadside memorial. And this, it's so horrible to admit this. The story idea came to me when I was driving over to my sister's house for a party and I had no hostess gift and I looked over and there was a vase with flowers in it. And so I did have that cruel thought myself (laughs) and then thought, wow, that's kind of a perfect Larry David thing. And he agreed. And he turned it into, I think it was season six, did the Ida Funkhauser Roadside Memorial, and they paid me $2,000. And I said, I've got some other ideas, and we set up a meeting, and I came in to pitch to Larry. So that's the setup. And then a year or so later, none of them moved forward. So a year or so later, both Larry, David, and I are at the same party. And a mutual friend introduced us and said, Larry, do you know now? And he's like, Nell, of course I know Nell. In fact, I was just talking about you today. So I'm like, whoa, Larry David was talking about me? (laughs) I'm like, so really, how come? And he said, well, one of our producers said you'd sold us two ideas for episode, but I insisted it was just one. We argued about it, and now here you are. You can solve the mystery. (laughs) So that was a little disappointing, right? And I was like, okay, it was just the one. And he was like, yes, and he's super happy to be right. And so trying to save face, I say to him, but you did like one of my other stories. And he says, which one? So I repitched the idea, which was this. Larry's at a party with a guy who won't stop talking about all his thrilling adventures. The guy goes hiking in the Himalayas, helicopter snowboarding, sailing around Tierra del Fuego. And in every story, he runs into complications and recounts how, in order to survive, he was forced to drink his own pee. So later, Larry sees the thrill seeker go into the bathroom with a near-empty bottle of beer. And when he comes out, the bottle is filled to the brim. And Larry watches as the guy takes swigs from the beer bottle, and Larry becomes convinced that he's drinking his own urine. So the great adventures are just to cover. The truth is the guy is purposely putting himself into life or death situations because it's the only socially acceptable way to drink your own pee. Oh, my God. It's the funniest thing. But his reaction, what was his reaction? Well, I didn't, like, say, ta-da, at the end of the pitch, but it was kind of implied. And he just looked at me and was like, no. Like, how should he not have jumped on that idea? I don't know, but it's funny, too, because it came because my husband went through this period where he was reading all these survivor stories of boats that were lost at sea for years, yeah, and, yeah. and so pee drinking was just kept coming up in conversation. Dude, I remember <laughs> I was interviewing Woody Harrelson forever ago for my first book, and the whole point of my interview with him was I was so impressed by the fact that he had just scaled the Golden Gate Bridge to protest the logging of giant redwoods, an ancient forest, basically. And so he was my total hero. And we're we're at lunch in Santa Monica, and he starts talking about, well, you know, I'm I'm reading up on this pee-urine drinking thing. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, you know, there's some health benefits. He starts talking about it. I just lost my mind. I was like... I felt like I had slipped into some insane conversation. I think he was just messing with me, but 
Okay, so well, I still think it's why the movie Waterworld didn't work. The very opening of that movie yeah. is Kevin Costner peeing into a contraption, <laughs> then it drips out water and he drinks it. And I think most people were like, I'm out. Okay, that's it. I don't want to be in this world for two hours. See ya. <laughs> That's funny because I didn't remember that scene, but I often think of Waterworld and how if the world was like that, I just wouldn't even want to be here. (laughs) Okay, so you've written jokes for President Obama for several White House correspondence dinners. I'm imagining that was a life highlight. And would you have wanted to be the writer who penned the Trump takedowns? (laughs) Because some people blame those for the reason that he's in the White House. Well, I was there that I did write on that year, 2011. But my jokes were all about like Matt Damon and Michelle Obama and candy. I stayed away from Trump. I think I have one joke in the birther chunk. But I think we're going to find out he ran for president because he needed the money. (laughs) He owed Russia millions of dollars and it was a way to raise his profile and get a Russian project going to pay them back. So I don't think jokes had anything to do with it. (laughs) Actually, I think it's bizarre that people think they did. Because my guess is he just felt great that he was even mentioned by the president. Well, yeah. But if you go back and you listen to the, I mean, there's like 14 minutes of excerpts of YouTube tapes of Obama just slamming him in all sorts of different talks, but a lot of them at the White House correspondence dinner. And what's pretty startling when you go back and watch it is, well, a couple of things. My God, Obama should be a stand-up comedian. He's got the best timing. But what was really intense about it was listening to the cheers. There were times where the audience was raucous. And so that's where I think people go, you know, I don't remember if it was when he was well, the I, Gary I, Busey thing was The was Gary really Busey funny. thing was really yeah. good. The Miss Sweden, Miss Argentina, Miss Azerbaijan. I mean, there were some really great lines there. Or the whole thing about, let's get back to issues that matter, like, did we fake the moon landing? There was some really funny stuff in there. But the audience reaction is what I think was so shaming. Maybe. I mean, I can't get inside that man's head. I and I think when you're that much of a sociopath, then maybe you just crave attention and you don't care like if it's positive or negative. And so I hear you. All right. So I want to talk about time, about stealing time as a writer. This is a big one for me as a parent, especially when I have to travel. And I know you're a parent of two and your husband is enormously helpful and real hands-on with your kids, but you work outside of the home a lot. So I want to know kind of the difference between when you're on a show versus when you're at home working on a book or working on maybe a spec script. What does it look for you as far as scheduling? Are you always, like with me, I'm like always going, God, I've got to get back to the page. Do you wrestle with that? I don't, you know, if we, my husband does more than be enormously helpful. We made the decision that he would be the primary caregiver. Yeah. And we didn't just do it for financial reasons. He's a far more patient person. He's very <laughs> suited to that. He was a great parent. So I talk in the book about how I made breakfast every morning for the kids because I didn't know whether I'd be home for dinner, but breakfast became this really wonderful time and we'd have great discussions. And I never felt like my kids were 
deprived in any way. So that's key. We just made it work in a way that so many couples who are TV writers do, but it's the dad yeah, <laughs> the mom who's going off in the mornings. Yeah, it was hard when I was on a show, Warehouse 13, and we shot in Toronto, and Toronto's far away, and you'd yeah. have to go up there for two weeks, and sometimes the dates would land where it had to be more than two weeks, and that was always a little heartbreaking. But I knew they were in good hands, and that makes a huge difference. Totally. When you're home, you know, I've always been home mostly because I write books for myself and other people as a ghostwriter and I'm doing it from yeah. my house. I don't have an outside office. That can be really hard though too because you're there, but you have to focus. So you're there, right. but you're not really there and you have to really schedule it. You know, I would do the same thing. I would make all the meals and try to be really present. But when mommy had to focus, mommy had to focus. And that's right. where I found myself really wrestling with stealing time. I'd eat a meal with my family and then they'd be like, come on, mom, let's watch a movie. And so I'd be watching the movie, but then the ideas are flowing. So it's like my attention is not really there. And I really wrestled with how to schedule it so that I just didn't feel like a jerk. It sounds like you don't wrestle with that too much. Less so, I guess, than most. I don't feel a tremendous amount of maternal guilt. What's nice is when they got a little older, both my kids are great writers and yeah. we would go out to Starbucks together and oh. I would work on my stuff and they would work on theirs. I work at night often. So yeah. after they went to bed, I would go do another couple of hours of work. And I think it's good for kids to see their mom's work. I agree. I agree. And I did the same thing with my son. And I also took him to bookstores a lot. So even now at 27, he'll call me and go, Mom, you want to go to Barnes & Noble? <laughs> and we'll do That's it. Sweet. Yeah. By the way, I love that you asked me about that. I can't tell you how few interviewers asked me about Colin, my husband, and yeah. how we worked it out. And I think it's really one of the reasons why I wrote the book was because my life was such a lean-in case study. And the reason I was able to do all that I did was because of my partner. Yeah. And, you know, Cheryl famously said that the biggest career decision that every woman makes is who her partner will be. Yeah. So nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> oh, nailed it. All right. I love what you say in the book that a writer writes a lot and then shares that work with others. It's what you start, finish, and put out into the world yeah. to see. And I think that impressed me so much that you said that because I don't hear many people write about that part of it, which is it's not just what you write, it's what you put out that matters. Yeah, right. The only way to move forward creatively is to allow yourself to be judged. Oh. And I think that does trip up women more than men. I mean, no, in general, people yep. don't love being criticized. And when people ask for advice, I would say, try to see feedback as constructive, not critical. Mm -hmm. And use feedback to make yourself a better writer or to make yourself more confident that what you did was right. Yeah. And evoke the response you wanted. Yeah. The other thing that I thought was so funny was when you said, fearing the blank page is like fearing an empty dog dish. <laughs> Can you explain that? Well, it's just something you fill every day. And I'll be honest, after 
Being a professional writer since 1982 was when I started getting paid. Actually, 81, I started getting paid for writing. That's a I long still, time, sister. It's a long time. I still marvel at how bad my first drafts are. Me too. Like Me you, too. You would think by now. I know. <laughs> and yet I finally figured out that's the process. And you start with, that's so filled the blank page. You may throw it out. I can't tell you how many notebooks I have filled with ideas for stories that never panned out and plays and screenplays and pilots and articles. And if you enjoyed the process, you're so far ahead of the game. Oh, I so agree. I had the last two days, I've gone over two chapters about 30 times and they're horrible. Still, they're horrible. But I know in my bones that what I'm saying is interesting and entertaining. I just haven't gotten to it yet. <laughs> <laughs> You'll find it. It's so painful. And, you know, last night I was thinking, God, I'm going to be talking to Nell in the morning. I've totally got to get some sleep. And I thought, no, I'm going to wrangle these two one more time. So I sat down and I thought, okay, this is like the 56th edit. I'm sure they're good now, right? So I edited both. I printed them up. I thought, I'll read them in the morning when I'm fresh. And I read them this morning, and they're less horrible than they were two days ago. Yeah. There you go. And you also often have to write something to figure out what you want to say. That's exactly right. Now, can we talk about flow for a minute? How? What kind of techniques or mindsets or rituals do you use to get into flow? Sugar (laughs) and coffee. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, like a morning bun kind of something with sugar and cinnamon sort of thing. You know, the one thing, I wrote my book right after Trump became president. And I was so grateful for the times that I was able to get into flow and not think about him. (laughs) Yeah. What was happening to this country. and. Not to ignore it, but to continue my work. And I. Distraction. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote a piece at one point called Is Trump Ruining Your Writing? And I wrote it because all of my clients were calling me like, Linda, oh my God, I'm so depressed. I can't do it. I just watch news all day long. And I'm like, we've got to take our power back, right? But I love working on my art because it does, it makes everything else smaller. I love how you divide well, Can I tell you, yes. long ago, a therapist told me, never let men derail your work. <gasps> and I thought of that again when Trump came up. <laughs> and just, he's not, he cannot, don't let him derail your work. <laughs> oh, God, that's so good. That is so <laughs> brilliant. Oh, gosh. Okay, so I love how you divided the book up into four parts with chapters for each stage that correspond. And so stage one is, who is Nell Scavell? Stage two is, get me Nell Scavell. Stage three is, get me a younger, cheaper Nell Scavell. And stage four is, who's Nell Scavell? <laughs> I thought that was <laughs> such a brilliant device, and I wanted to know how you thought of it. Well, it's one of those jokes that's funny because it's true. And since it was told to me in the early 90s, probably a month hasn't gone by where I didn't think of that joke. Yeah. So. It seemed like a good device, and it's funny because I went back and forth, and at one point, my editor said, I think we should drop it, and I agreed, and I dropped it, and she read it, and then she said, no, I think we should put it back in, and I was like, really? I thought it worked, and she was like, no, I miss it, 
<laughs> yeah, no, it's too good. From the second I saw it, I was like, ah, oh. because, you know, as somebody who advises people on how to write books, you're always looking for a way, a smart, different way to organize material. And I instantly went, oh, God, that was a good one. Oh, that makes me so happy. And this is interesting about writing, just to say, like, I tried it without, too. Yes. And what we saw was it was better with it. And I talk about writing being like an optometrist where you're I love that. Yeah. flipping the lenses. Is this better? Is this better? <laughs> so I do think not locking in, but always being open to trying something a different way yeah. and then seeing, and sometimes that's the way you figure out that the way was correct. Mm, I totally agree. I'm one of those people that wakes up with ideas. So I'll wake up and see the introduction of a chapter or a magazine article, or sometimes I'll wake up and see a whole book. But by the time I sit down to try to grab the book, you know, it's disappearing right before my eyes. And then I have to do what you're saying. I have to put on those glasses and I have to keep switching the lenses over and over and over until I can pull it together. Can we talk about the art of pitching for a minute? Sure. You've done so many pitches in your career. You've worked on so many different shows and movies and things. Do you have any tips about pitching? Well, I've always led with my ideas. And I actually don't think I'm a great pitcher. I'm not a performer. (laughs) And I get nervous. So for me, I like to just write everything down and Mm -hmm. then read from it, which is not the best way to pitch. You're better off performing. If, Although if it you helps do that. It helps when you're writing a book, right? All your stuff is down on paper yes. already. <laughs> yes. Although you still take your meetings with the editors and you have to yep. come in with your pattern. So I will say when I would do TV pitches, I would always try to think of some joke based on the news. This is where my topical joke writing skills came in. Because mm. I always think it's good, like, if you're pitching a comedy, show you're funny. Like this, <laughs> that, and that will reverberate throughout the pitch. That yeah. once, if you can convince them that you're funny. And I always thought, well, my pitching style's not great, but the ideas are there. Mm-hmm. So be better than me. No, no. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So the Me Too movement. I want to talk about your Letterman essay and how it relates to that movement because I nearly did something just about as scary and I decided for me it was too risky. I definitely want to tell you about that, but I think for our listeners who don't know or who don't remember what happened with you, let me give a quickie overview. It's 2009. David Letterman has announced on air that he's being blackmailed from somebody for doing, I don't know, bad stuff and sleeping with women that he worked with. He was being blackmailed by the live-in boyfriend of the assistant who he was screwing. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> right. Okay. So let's just be let's clear. Be clear. So that's the little triangle at the center of this. That's yeah. fabulous. All right. So you had already quit writing for his show. Soon after you were hired, by the way, despite the fact that getting that gig was your number one goal. So you bailed because of the sexist culture, the hostile work environment, the lack of female writers on the show. and then. You did the crazy-ass courageous thing, and you (laughs) you penned a very public Vanity Fair story about the sexist culture, the hostile work environment, the lack of female writers on the show. Dude, take me into your head right before you hit send on that piece. 
Oh, I was convinced there was a good chance it would just completely end my career. Oh, for sure. And I had a long discussion with my husband about whether I wanted to move forward. I called our accountant <laughs> to discuss our financial situation. If yep, you know, and I remember saying, "What if I never make another dollar? <laughs> Can we send our kids to college?" And it turned out to be one of the best things I've ever done. Wow! And I think it's put me on that path to meeting Cheryl and moving in directions like speech writing and book writing that I've never dreamed of, which I love. And I continue to work for TV. So all advice is autobiographical. Yep. But when I talk to someone who says, should I come forward? I always tell them my story, which was, it made me feel so much better. Mm. So where I chose a different path, the Weinstein story had just broke. And like you, I couldn't not write about it. I couldn't not do it. I had had several experiences years before. One, with one of the biggest directors in Hollywood, who is still so powerful that he has been mostly unscathed by the Me Too movement. I mean, I keep waiting, but so far. And the other was... two producers who condemned Harvey Weinstein publicly, I know have settled sexual harassment suits. Oh, so infuriating. Okay, the other guy that I wrote about, or, well, we'll talk about that in a sec, was a celebrity business mogul who has also skated through pretty damn well. And I was lucky in that with the director, I was quick on my feet. And when he did his deal, I basically told him to go fuck himself, which is so not me. I can't even tell you. Like, I never have told anyone that in my entire life. And then with the other guy... When the whole grab him by the pussy video floodgates opened, and <laughs> I love how you talk about not the casting couch, but it's really the rape sofa. So <laughs> I just decided I had to write a piece about how this issue isn't local to Hollywood or New York, but it's systemic. People in yeah. every city, every state, every nation on this planet suffer through so much worse than anything I went through at the hands of people who willfully misuse their power and prestige. This was at the very start of the movement, and I knew that if I wrote this piece, it was going to be bombshell, right? And I was scared out of my mind, but I worked really hard on it. I was so proud of it. I worked around the clock because I needed to get it out right away because for all I knew, these names were going to be really public in a matter of days, and I wanted to get the scoop. So minutes, (laughs) Nell, it was like two minutes before I went to press send on sending the final draft to the New York Times. I get a call from a family member who says, uh, Linda, are you sure? Are you sure? This is like your accountant call. He was like, are you sure that you are willing to lose everything just to publish this story? Can you afford it? And I called my fiance and I was like, can we afford it? If I lose everything, are you going to cover me? (laughs) I mean, like, what does this look like? And he would have covered me, but I wasn't willing. One of the men that I was outing is enormously powerful, but the other one, the second one, had successfully sued a friend of ours for millions of dollars. And what he loved about suing her was how it ruined her. And I just, I thought about my son and all he'd gone through with the divorce and blah, blah, blah. And I just, I wasn't willing to face the wrath or the wealth. I wasn't willing. So I decided against publishing it. But what I did do is I wrote about it in a lesser way on my blog. I felt like I was still a voice for reason and education and 
But it's a hard decision, right? It's a really hard decision. It is. I mean, the one thing I would say is get the information to, there are some reporters who are gathering information and Me Too stories. And when they hit critical mass, then you've got cover. Yeah. Well, the thing for me is I was never forced into anything because I was lucky. I was one of the ones that was obnoxious enough. And also, here's where I was in a different position than a lot of people. I didn't need either of these men. Yeah. And that's where I feel so much compassion for the people who feel like they need, their livelihood depends on it. You know, I look back and I share this Me Too story in the book, which I don't want to go into now because I I think it has a lot of nuance. But I do think I was so privileged. And if I had said no, I still wouldn't have lost the roof over my head. I would have worked again. And it really is. But it's why I think anyone who can speak out really should speak out because there are so many who can't. Oh, that's great. Any mean girls from your past? Any snotty? I had some snotty, (laughs) smarty pants girls in high school who thought I was an airhead. And when I started writing, I definitely had to get past their bully remnants that were clanging around in my brain oh uh yeah i didn't have they didn't pay enough attention to me to be mean (laughs) you didn't piss anyone off by dating the wrong guy i never dated in high school i was a big egghead in high school and proudly so and actually graduated from high school early and moved to spain i think mostly so i would have an excuse for not going to prom (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, my God, that's so good. <laughs> oh, God, love you. My mom didn't go to prom either, and she was on the committee, the prom committee. Oh, uh, well, that's so That broke my heart. <laughs> my mom, like your mom, died of pancreatic cancer, and she, like your mom, was my biggest fan and total unconditional love, which made me feel, just like you said, that I yeah. could go out in the world and do whatever I wanted to do unapologetically. Thank you, Mama. Thank you, Mom. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things is people repeating that great story of my mom going to my third grade parent-teacher conference. (laughs) And the teacher said to her, Nell makes too many jokes in class. Would you ask her to tone it down? And my mom delivers this message to me on my 40th birthday. (laughs) You know, I've been a professional comedy writer 13 years, so she was amazing. I love it. All right. Well, on that note, you go have a wonderful day with your children. Thank you. It's been so nice. Thank you, Linda, for all you do. Total pleasure. Huge thank you to Nell for spending her Sunday morning with me. Nell has said that her biggest passions are comedy, creativity, and equality. And that feels like church to me any day of the week. One of my favorite parts of our chat was when she reminded us to never let men derail our work, ladies. That's a big one for me, a former time debtor in love. If you ever worry that you're losing hours or more of your creative time to dysfunctional relationships, you might want to try something I did. I created a color-coded calendar on my computer that rocked my world and helped me see more about my lost time to relationships at a glance than any therapy. It's the focus of a TED Women talk I did on time debt that you can Google. 
And I ultimately turned my calendar into a free iPhone app that you can download to track your creative time and relationships. It's called the Boyfriend Log, and it's helped a lot of people. All right, remember to download or pick up just the funny parts. And while you're at it, to be prepped for next month's show with Austin Channing Brown, pick up a copy of her debut bestseller, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. Austin's a powerful voice for racial justice and a stunning memoirist, but (laughs) she's also so much fun and so darling, I can't even. You will see. Until next time, right on.